Support for the Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. It's the Capital Connection. Hi, I'm David Gustina. With us this week is Susan Lerner, the Executive Director of Common Cause New York. Susan joined the organization in December 2007. Susan Lerner, welcome to the Capital Connection. Absolutely happy to be here. Well, I was going to go through your bio there, and I thought, why have me say what you've done? Why don't I just ask you, tell us a little bit about your path to become the executive director of Common Cause and why you wanted to get involved with the issues that the organization deals with. Well, you know, I am a reformed commercial litigator, and I uh, have been doing uh, nonprofit work uh, for over 25 years. Uh, I started in the abortion rights field and transitioned to issues relating to the federal judiciary and campaign finance when I was living in California, working my way to get back home to New York. And uh, as I worked in California um, on good government issues, what I saw was uh, really a need for reforming campaign finance um, in California, they have really great election laws, and I would describe California's system as too much democracy because uh, the voters are faced with, oh, 14 to 16 citizen-derived initiatives. When I was lucky enough to move back to New York and get the job at Common Cause, I knew I was joining an organization that worked across the country to make government more responsive. I'd worked with my colleagues at Common Cause when I was with the California Clean Money Campaign. And so I was really delighted to be back home in New York City working on democracy and fairly shocked to realize that I'd gone from one extreme, which was California with too much direct democracy, to the other extreme, which is New York with no direct democracy. So I've been working on campaign finance ethics, and most particularly in the last five years, on New York's election laws to really help open up our system and be sure that every single eligible voter has a fair chance to choose their representatives, which led us a common cause 10 years ago, or actually 12 years ago, to work on redistricting, and then again in this cycle to work on redistricting, because our government's a representative government. So you have to elect people who are responsive to the people they are supposed to represent. And in order to do that, you need a fair map that accurately reflects how people live, work, and gather in a particular area. We're speaking with Susan Lerner. She is the executive director of Common Cause New York. Susan, so is it a fair map? I mean, we saw this over and over again play out. It went through judges, some judge shopping, and finally we get a bipartisan commission. The, the voters want that. They want the bipartisan commission to decide on the lines. They decide on the lines, and immediately the Democrats come in who run the legislature and say, oh, hang on a second, we want to tweak a few races, but apparently not enough for the Republicans to sue, so the governor signs it. What's your take on the new map? 
Well, what a sad shaggy dog story you've just told us that we all had to live through um, with all of this back and forth. And, it, you know, it seems like there are two political parties with big foam bats hitting each other over the head, over the maps, which is not what our system is supposed to be. You know, what you've described is a system that completely ignores the voters and puts political preferences first. That's not what our system is supposed to be. Now, at the end of the day, as you pointed out, um, the maps have been tweaked a little bit by the politically driven redistricting commission, tweaked a little bit further by the legislature. Everybody along the way wants to show they have a pencil, they can make changes. But luckily, at the end of the day, the changes to what was basically a perfectly okay map drawn by the court-appointed master in 2022 has remained relatively unchanged. What's most important is that we are putting a cap on this endless, sad, shaggy dog story. The maps are final, and voters and candidates can now turn to what's really important, which is the election. What do you make, though, of Speaker Hasty? And I'm going to paraphrase what he said, though, which was basically to a reporter that the legislature doesn't have to abide by the IRC, the Independent Redistricting Commission. And once again, you you make it political by saying that, don't you? Absolutely. But that's the weakness with the system that's set up in our state constitution. Because let me be very upfront. Common Cause opposed that amendment because we felt it was way too political. We went to court to get a successfully get a court order that prevented the use of the word independent on the ballot in 2014 to describe the redistricting commission because it's not independent. It's politically driven. It's uh, People are appointed by legislative leaders. They're appointed on the basis of their party affiliation. It doesn't have to look like the state. It doesn't have to reflect the the diverse geography and regions of the state. It ref- The commission reflects the desires of the political parties. But what happened is I think in this most recent iteration, the legislature wanted to show that they had the final word. They didn't make, need to make big changes. They just needed to show that they had a large pencil backed up by a big stick. Uh, and again, it's the voters who are the losers in that situation. But this is not the only way to do it. There are better models out there, and it's about time that we started talking about what redistricting really should be in our state instead of what we've been burdened with over the last several years. We are on the same page because that's where I was going. Tell us about the Syracuse example. Well, the Syracuse example is a really good example. Thank you for bringing that up. Syracuse, and this is really to the credit of the Syracuse Common Council because um, they Uh, several years ago in 2018 and 19, decided that they were not the right people to draw the maps because of their own self-interest, that they needed to put the voters first. And they went ahead and introduced a system where 15 non-politically chosen residents of Syracuse get together. They're on a commission. They hear from Uh, Members of the public in Syracuse, they conduct hearings, they negotiate the map in public, and they come up with a fair map that reflects 
the actual communities of Syracuse, that's a compromise map. That's a consensus map. No one community, no one political party gets to draw the map to their advantage. It's a negotiation between the different parts of the city. So you have a consensus map that fairly represents where people actually, as I said, live, work, and gather. So maps that are fair have to be based around the communities that make up any one jurisdiction. And in Syracuse, they now have a map that reflects the actual patterns of living, working, and gathering in Syracuse. Yeah, and I wonder how much this plays into people who are politically knowledgeable. Let's take the people who aren't paying attention out of the picture for a minute. That's a lot, but those that are politically active, stay politically educated, that voters lose their confidence in the electoral system because of things like the gerrymander, because redistricting, in many cases in New York, starts out with an unfair playing field from the very beginning. So it's almost as if the majorities and the minorities are already picked through redistricting in the legislature, and then you wonder why people go, well, why should I vote? It doesn't matter. Well, that is really the problem with a gerrymandered system that's politically driven. As I said, it doesn't put the voters in the driver's seat. And elections are supposed to be about voters, not politicians choosing their voters. So right now, unfortunately, our democracy is under tremendous stress. And watching the uh, political infighting going on around maps is very dispiriting for the voters. They feel like they're not being heard, they're not given a fair chance. So that's why it's so very important that we have finally finished this process. And again, we can turn to the elections, which are about the voters. We need to reform the system, but at this point, what we need is to put the cap on, as I've said, the shaggy dog story, move on and turn towards allowing voters to evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of the people who are running for office. And Susan Lerner, Executive Director of Common Cause, how do we get more people to vote? I know you've worked on a number of initiatives. We want certainly to give perhaps more than a day the ability to cast an absentee ballot. You know, Republicans will always argue, well, there's a price for citizenship, but yet shouldn't every citizen be able to vote? Well, you know, Dave, there's no one magic silver bullet. If we had a way in which we could flip a switch and be sure that we got 70 to 80 percent of the population to vote, we would have done that long since. Elections are complicated. There are a lot of different factors. But what we at Common Cause and our colleagues in the Let New York Vote Coalition have been working on is to remove any barriers to voting that unnecessarily complicate the process. So with the help of the legislature, in the past five years, New York has really made some important strides towards modernizing our elections. We've got early voting. We now have one day of same-day registration. We've moved our voter registration deadline closer to election day to create that one day. We've got vote by mail. Uh, we are uh, we have a system of online voter registration, and sometime, hopefully in the nearer future, we're going to have automatic voter registration in place. So we're removing barriers. We're making it possible for eligible voters to be able to have their voices heard. And of course, what we need in this state is more voter education. We need fewer election days. 
and more information provided directly to the voters about when elections are taking place and about the candidates. And at the end of the day, it's good candidates running good campaigns who get people to turn out and vote. Yeah, and there's another voting block that's in some cases been added, and that is those college students on college campuses. Those campuses that have, I believe it's a minimum of 300 registered voters, are supposed to have a polling site on campus. That's according to the New York State law there. And we see now a bunch of stories coming out that college leaders and others are urging action on this, that while the law is passed, not many campuses are following through. You've got to notify the Board of Elections in order to establish a polling site. You've got to make students aware that it's there and when the hours are to vote and all the rules, of course. So, you know, this is another element to the voting block that often gets overlooked or in the past, you know, they had to register in their homes, not in their campuses. And it was another barrier in some ways for college students to vote. What do you make of this plan? Well, you know, we are really strong supporters of ensuring that any group of voters, including college students, have a chance to make their voices heard where they're actually residing. So, uh, you know, I was really happy to hear Governor Hochul talk about the need for supporting access to the ballot for college students where they're actually living, which is around campus. Um, you know, there are some weaknesses to the state of our law. When you actually try to do the analysis, there may not be a lot of campuses that fall under the very narrow requirements, but there's nothing that's keeping college campuses from asking for polling places, whether they're technically required to under state law or not. And so what we're seeing, working with student groups, with the college campuses, with boards of elections, a push towards ensuring that there are more polling places on college campuses. It's an obvious place to put a polling place because you've got not only students, but you've got staff and faculty. You've got a lot of people who spend their workday at that location. So having a polling place, particularly during early voting, we're outside of New York City, the uh, early voting location is countywide really facilitates voting for everybody who has anything to do with that college or university. That would be a net plus for everybody in that location. And we're hoping to see a real increase in the number of college campuses that have polling places in this so important 2024 election year. All right, Susan Lerner, Executive Director of Common Cause New York. Let's cue the dark music and talk about money in politics. I mean, this is the real evil, isn't it? The fact that in so many cases, you have to have money in order to run. And that means those who have more money um, often have more influence and power to move the system in the direction they want, including armies of lobbyists that come in and ply politicians with money for campaigns. Let's talk about money and politics. Well, you are right about the dark aspect of this. It is one of the real problems in our current system, and it has been terribly exacerbated and encouraged by some very misguided rulings by the U.S. Supreme Court within the last several decades that make it much harder to control what is a truly corrosive and warping influence of too much money in our politics. But, you know, Dave, we have a new system here in New York State, which is very, very encouraging. It's a public financing system. It's what we call a matching system. 
that's modeled on the very successful system in New York City. And we've hit a new milestone in this new public financing system, which is over 300 candidates have signed up to be part of the new campaign finance system. And what's great about this system is, one, it's a voluntary system. So when a candidate agrees to accept public money, they can accept limitations on their own conduct and on the fundraising that they do that we wouldn't be able to impose under state law because of the shackles that the U.S. Supreme Court has placed on our ability to control political money. Um, so this is the first time we've had this system in New York State. We're all really excited uh, to see increasing numbers of candidates signing up, accepting the limitations of the system, and deciding that they want to center their fundraising on small dollar donations from people in their districts uh, in order to show that they have a real base of support among the people who are going to vote for them. Because that's what a public financing matching system does. It switches the emphasis from high-ticket, uh, lobbyist-fueled campaign parties where you can get checks of thousands and thousands of dollars to spending the, your time as a candidate in your district with small-dollar events asking people to provide $5, $10, dollars $25 to support the candidate who will then receive matching funds from the state. So the biggest thing, I think the most important thing it does is it switches the way in which you campaign. And instead of spending your time in Albany looking for $20,000 checks, you're in your district talking to voters, convincing them to support you, not just with your votes, but with a small dollar donation that gets you more money in the campaign finance system. The question is, how do we hold legislators, lawmakers responsible when they cross the ethical boundaries? When you've got lawmakers making the rules, they're not going to set up ethics commissions to really check themselves. I think we've seen that over the years, that a lot of these ethics commissions have really not had a lot of teeth to them. What are we doing and what should we be doing for ethics and accountability in New York? Well, you know, we have a much stronger system that's in place right now than we've had previously. Um, it is, again, to the credit of Governor Hochul that several years ago, she insisted that we have a new ethics oversight body, and she came up with a novel way to set it up so that it would be much more independent, and that is having uh, the usual nomination process, which is in the hands of the governor and the legislative leaders, but then using law school deans to vet those candidates to be sure that they had the necessary background and that they had the necessary uh, support for being independent from the people who appointed them. So that commission got set up, and lo and behold, it began to function the way it's supposed to, which is being independent of elected officials. And it turned to some really problematic conduct on the part of our former governor, Andrew Cuomo, and started raising questions about how he ended up getting, uh, I believe it was five or six million dollars in an advance for a book. And the 
former governor did not appreciate having a truly independent ethics oversight body questioning his conduct. And he went to court and and has received what I believe is a really misguided lower court opinion, which uh, attacks the independence of ethics oversight. That flies in the face of what New Yorkers want. New Yorkers want effective, independent ethics oversight to know that there is um, a watchdog who, with some teeth, that's going to hold elected and appointed officials accountable and ferret out any type of corruption in our system um, to be sure that those who lose their way are held accountable and that we don't have a, a corrupt system, but we have a government that works with integrity and honesty and transparency. We're speaking with Susan Lerner, the executive director of Common Cause New York. I'm David Gustina, and you're listening to The Capital Connection. Susan, let's turn a little bit to media and democracy. Now, this has been a huge issue. We have seen what's happened in the right-wing press when Trump first ran for election and the subsequent spreading of lies about a stolen election in 2020 and all the interstitial things from the COVID vaccine to what's happening on the border. And from that spring conspiracy theories and all sorts of other things that come out of it. Then you have the president himself, the former president, declaring the media the fake news. And then you get people who will look at the mainstream media and organizations like ours, WAMC, or even the New York Times, and call them the lamestream media. Again, another place, another institution where confidence is lost. And you can't have a democracy, if, at least if I read the Bill of Rights correctly, without the fourth estate, without media. And in many ways, the media is suffering right now because people aren't willing to pay the money. And the model has blown blown apart by the Internet. We need to have a healthy media in order to have democracy, don't we? Oh, I couldn't agree more. It's absolutely essential. People need to know what's actually happening uh, in order to have, uh, you know, in order to vote, uh, in order to hold our elected officials accountable. Uh, in order to support the policies that make us all prosperous um, and allow us to, uh, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you don't know what's going on, you can't be an informed voter, and you uh, fall prey to crazy conspiracy theories. It's absolutely essential that we have a well-functioning media that accurately reflects uh, the facts, reports the facts. And, you know, objectivity doesn't mean neutrality. It doesn't mean both sidesarisms. It doesn't mean, oh, I've reported that uh, X, Y, and Z happened. Now I have to find the contrary vote. Uh, I have to find a voice that, even though it's not really well-founded, will provide another viewpoint. Um, there actually is an objective truth in many, many areas. And when we have one political party or particular candidates who want to peddle out and out lies, it's the media's obligation to call it out and not just parrot misinformation, but actually say, this is not true. Um, and we're beginning to see a bit more of that. 
one of the big challenges, I think, Dave, is that local media has really been significantly diminished. Absolutely. We're in the middle of some huge marketplace restack where, as you point out, the financial model that supported small newspapers has really been torn up. And we don't yet know what financial model is going to effectively support local news. So one of the things that we all need to be aware of is that local media outlets need our support. It is worthwhile to subscribe and to let your friends and neighbors know about a good local news source because we all need to know what's going on in our backyard. I want to take it from the other side now, and this is the thing that frustrates me as a public radio journalist and my interpretation that if you're elected by the people to be in the legislature, you have an obligation to speak to the people. You have an obligation to talk to public broadcasting, to get the message out about what your plans are, what your proposals are, how you're working with your colleagues in the legislature. And I think the politicians have come up with new tactics to avoid the press at all costs. They can post their stuff on social media. They can do their own podcasts. They can work around it. And I'm going to be a little critical for a moment of Governor Kathy Hochul because I can't get her people to respond to me in any depth. And when I go to their website, it's not transparent. They don't have their press people's numbers and contact information. And despite what I would feel is the obligation that if you represent the people of New York State or any district in New York State, you have an obligation to talk to the press about what you're doing. Well, I would take it even further. You have an obligation to talk to the press. You also have an obligation to talk to your constituents directly. We have seen here in New York some really unfortunate behavior on the part of elected officials who don't hold town halls, who don't want to speak directly to the people who they represent, or if they do hold town halls, that they restrict the attendant to either a particular political party or only some members of the public and don't allow the press to attend. What we need is true transparency and responsiveness on behalf of all of our elected officials who should be out in the community talking to voters on a regular basis and who should be holding regular town halls where they present their policies to the people that they represent and they take live questions from the public so they have a better idea of what voters are concerned about and they can be better representatives. That is all the time we have, and we have had an incredible guest today. She is Susan Lerner, the Executive Director of Common Cause New York. Susan, I can't thank you enough for joining us, and I can only hope that you'll come back again. It's been a pleasure, and thanks for having me, and I always enjoy a really wide-ranging discussion like this one. Thank you. The Capital Connection is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. You can listen to The Capital Connection anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for another political conversation. For The Capital Connection, I'm David Gustino. Support for The Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative.